Worldwide Bitcoin Accumulation Country. My name is Coin Icarus. I'm your host. This is the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. We are in season three, and this is episode 33. I hope everybody's having a great week. I've got a very special episode today with they're all special episodes, uh, but uh, anyways, this is with a fellow Bitcoiner that I've been talking to for a very long time. I truly appreciate his insights and views. Um, he also has a a very elegant way of explaining complex ideas simply. I am talking about Mr. Jimbo Coin, or on Twitter, he's known as Jimbo, and yeah, we sat down and had a really interesting chat. But before we get into that, we are going to talk about dollar cost averaging and Swan Bitcoin. For anybody who is interested in dollar cost averaging and who wants to be purchasing Bitcoin but doesn't want to be spending their time constantly watching the charts and listening to traders that they really have no idea whether these people are credible or not, and you kind of just want to put this in kind of in a passive sleep mode where you're simply just accumulating and hodling being able to transfer that Bitcoin out to your own private address. So if you're interested in doing that and that falls in, in your wheelhouse, then you are looking for Swan Bitcoin. With Swan Bitcoin, the three main takeaways are we've, we can do automatic withdrawal from a bank account, automatic purchases of BTC. You can time them based on your uh, when you receive your check. You know, you can do it, uh, you know, let's say once um, you can do it once a month. Um, or you can do it per pay period as well. Um, there's lots of options for you to be able to customize how you purchase. And you could automatically withdraw to your uh, your chosen address. So if you're interested in a Bitcoin-only platform um, that is doing the, uh, the great work of helping onboard people, then you definitely want to check out Swan Bitcoin. I'm going to have the, uh, the link to their website in the show notes. Time to sit back, grab your favorite drink or smoke. And tune in to a wonderful talk with Jimbo. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me on the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I'm your host, Phil, or Coin Icarus on Twitter. And joining me today is a fellow, uh, fellow Bitcoiner and taco pleb. And uh, he's actually writing a book right now called Orange Coin Good, which hopefully will be coming out in the not too distant future. I'm definitely excited for it. I am talking about Mr. Jimbo Coin. Jimbo, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Very cool. So before we get started um, and before we go into your rabbit hole story, I, I just want to, uh, I, I personally, you know, from the interactions that we've had and um, the the conversations that I, I've seen you have with other Bitcoiners, I find you to be one of the most uh, like uh, eloquent writers and I, I find that you have a really good way of expressing the the ideas that a lot of us have a hard time expressing. So I, I really I'm obviously super excited for your book, but I'm obviously totally honored that you're here with me today. Well, thanks. I, uh, you know, I have the best words and I like to use them. <laughs> you do, actually. So <laughs> That's awesome. OK, so look, so um, as is customary on the uh, Fun with Bitcoin podcast, I always like to uh, find out, you know, the thinker behind the thought. Um, where were you, you know, before Bitcoin and how did you find Bitcoin and why are we here now? Oh, um, well, that's a really that's a really great question. So, um, yeah, I'm sad to report that it took me a very long time to fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, I was 
I was eminently prepared for it uh, in the sense that uh, my dad had shared with me Creature with Jekyll Island um, by G. Edward Griffin sometime around 2007. So even before the Bitcoin paper, I already understood central banking and how money is created and all that. And I had a, I had all of the, the relevant background information to appreciate it. Um, I just, I just like everybody, when I first heard about Bitcoin, um, I said, ah, oh, that sounds like a scam. And then I ignored it. Um, and then it wasn't until years later that, uh, that I actually did some more research. And um, when, uh, let's say, like, when was that, that point when you started to do more research? Uh, yeah, well, I, I can just give you, I can just give you a, a timeline uh, if it's not too boring. So, oh, no, it's I, not. That, that's the, that, that's the whole point. I love that. Please. <laughs> sure. So, so, I mean, everybody goes through these same steps. So you first hear about Bitcoin and you're like, wow, that's a scam. And then, uh, you know, some time passes and then you look at it and you're like, well, it's, it's come down off of its peak price. So even if it's not a scam, it's too late for me. I already missed out. And then a long time passes and then you hear about it again. You're like, wow, that thing's still around. I wonder what that is. And at that point you might fall into the rabbit hole and, and I'm, I'm no different. So I first heard about Bitcoin. I don't know precisely when, but I know that it must've been before late 2011 because I know what job I was at. And then I took a new job in late 2011. Um, and I had heard about it at the previous job and I ignored it then. Um, and my ignorance of it, my ignorance of it um, was unfortunately couched on bias. So I have a pretty strong um, anti-academic bias. And so when I hear that something's a white paper, I immediately, my, my gut reaction is to discount it because uh, I feel like if you have a good idea, you should be able to express it in a clear way. You don't need this, this academic um, accoutrements. That, that was my bias kind of come down off that bias some, but so I ignored it on the fact that it was a, a quote unquote white paper, um, which, you know, is stupid in retrospect. Uh, so anyway, I didn't hear about Bitcoin for a while. And then when it, when it went to, to $30, I heard about it again and I thought, wow, man, that, that thing's still around. No way. Uh, but well, it's too late now it's coming down. So I really started paying attention to Bitcoin price, probably circa 2012 when Bitcoin was around $9. And I thought, well, dang, maybe I should get some of this, but I don't want to buy it if it's really just dying a slow death off of that peak from $30. I don't know what to do. So I just watched it, did nothing. Then it went up to $12 and I said, dang, I should have bought it back when it was $9. What have I done? Like I, I missed out. <clears throat> so then I really started diving into the charts and I, I took, um, I, I did an audit course of a Coursera course called uh, Active Portfolio Management uh, with Tucker Balch. And I learned things about the Sharpe ratio, and I learned about you know how to evaluate the, the value of equities over time. And I I plugged in all the all the then data about Bitcoin into the Sharpe ratio calculator, and it just blew away everything else. And I said, "Dang, well, why am I even bothering with this uh, active portfolio management for stocks when Bitcoin is better?" So this again, this was like 20, 20, late twenty twelve, early twenty thirteen. And I said, nice. "Well." Yeah. So I had, I identified at that time, the, the, the step function where it's like Bitcoin goes flat for a while, then it goes vertical, then it comes back down, but it comes back down to a higher level than it was before. And I said, okay, well, next time it does this, it'll probably go to a hundred dollars based on the previous top of $30. So I did the laborious process of getting set up with Mt. Gox. And this was in like early 2013. And nice. uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> it does. The story doesn't go well. Let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, like, like many Mt. Gox stories. So I got on Mt. Gox and um, the way that you got money up there was through, you know, you could do bank transfers or whatever, but uh, I was like, well, this is some shady company in Japan. I don't want to give them all my stuff. 
So I created, I, I, I funded a separate bank account with actual physical money that had no relationship to my other banking. And then I used that to fund a Dwalla account because at the time Dwalla was a payment processor and Mt. Gox would allow you to do uh, money transfers from them. So then I funded my Dwalla account and then I used that to fund my Mt. Gox account. That way, if Mt. Gox ever got hacked, all that the hackers would know about me would be my Dwalla account which had nothing in it except for what I put in Mt. Gox and was only attached to another account that had nothing in it except physical cash that I put in there to, to trade with. So I had like multiple layers of digital prophylactic to protect myself from scams, which was fortunate because later on Mt. Gox got hacked and then the information leaked and all that stuff. So I got a Mt. Gox account and I put some money in there and then I bought one Bitcoin at $127 and then I sold it like a week later for $135 and thought I was a genius because I had just made like $8 you know, in a few days. <laughs> That's awesome. I took most of my money off and I left $10 on there, like $10 and 29 cents. And then, uh, you know, then I just, did, I stopped paying attention and whatnot for a long time. And, uh, you know, Mt. Gox collapsed and every once in a while I get the bankruptcy notice now that like, we're, we're still working on getting you your $10. Uh, so I, I hope to see that again someday, but it was in dollars, not in Bitcoin. So, I, there's been no appreciation. Oh my gosh! So, that, but so Jimbo, I, I didn't realize that you were a Mount Gox OG. That's awesome. Uh, I guess. Yeah, you I know? guess. I mean, <laughs> like like I said, I can't take credit for doing anything. I never, I never got control of my own keys because at the time I didn't understand it. To me, at that time, it was just um, this ephemeral thing. Uh, you know, and then life intervened, and then 2014, I 2015, I was just kind of occasionally checking the price. Um, I sent a voicemail to myself in January of 2015 and I said, well, you know, now it's down to 155 bucks. I should probably buy some. And I didn't buy any cause I'm stupid. And then, uh, and then 2016, like so many other, um, Americans, I was totally enthralled with the presidential debacle, um, and all the, all the election year shenanigans. Um, and so then I didn't start paying attention again until 2017 when we hit new all-time highs. And then when it hit new all-time highs, I said, okay, this thing is never going to die. Like I just had that kind of like core belief flip in me. And that, that was when I started to like actually do some research. Um, as I started to learn more about it, I started to write some notes, which was originally just going to be a, a little like newsletter for my friends about like what was going on in, in at that time, the crypto space, uh, because I hadn't yet learned to uh, totally discount everything that's not Bitcoin. Uh, and then that morphed it just became longer and longer because as i was doing research i would i would just learn something new and then i i my my original newsletter just got longer and longer i said okay i should just write a book and then the book was getting longer and longer and i projected and i said well this book is going to be 600 pages so then i was like okay let's just chop it off what can i say right now and that's going to be book one and then i'll have like a four book series so when you mentioned orange Cone good that's the first book of what i hope to be a four book series uh that i have all sketched out orange Cone good is the first book and that kind of brings us up to today. Okay, that's very cool. I did not realize that's a four book series, so I'm excited. Um, let me ask you this. When um, when do you plan on releasing that book? Because I, I recall you putting in a very interesting answer for that. Oh. Because we've, yeah. we, we've been bugging you. <laughs> yeah, well, no, thanks. Uh, I, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from... Um, from uh, the plebs group. Uh, I appreciate everybody in there. Um, you know, the book isn't, wouldn't have been nearly as good had it not been for the early feedback I got from them. Uh, but the readership for this book, so so it's, again, it's, it's meant to be like a four part series. 
the first book of the series, Orange Coin Good, is meant for pre-coiners. So these are people who haven't yet made up their mind about Bitcoin. They're, they're maybe in that phase where it was like they heard about it a long time ago, thought they missed out, and now they're hearing about it again for the first time. It's like, or for the second time, and they're like, well, maybe, that, maybe there is something in that Bitcoin thing. What is it? That is my target audience. Those people are not paying attention right now because we're only at $9,000. And quite frankly, I can't compete with 2020 as far as like attention goes. Everybody's attention is on other stuff. <laughs> so right now here, you know, where we're floating around 9,000, the most boring price action of all time, nobody's paying attention to Bitcoin. And so my readership's not here. So, so hitting the publish button right now wouldn't make sense. So my current plan is to hit the publish button right around $18,000 because around $18,000, we're within shooting range of all-time highs. And that's when the news cycle is going to be picking up. And that's when people are going to be starting watching the news saying like, oh, yeah, that Bitcoin thing's still around. Maybe I'll look into that. And that's when my readers are going to show up. I, I completely agree. And I really I got to say, I, I loved your response because, um, you know, a lot of times when people do something, it's just like you're you're not thinking about the whole thing. You know, you're not thinking of the um, the set setting and mode. You know, you're just like, all right, I did my project and I'm publishing it. And here I go. And I, I love that you're, you know, you're, you're really, you know, pinpointing this, this kind of, this angle um, where you're using the, you know, like the momentum of Bitcoin, you know, the, you know, the tide that raises all the ships. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I didn't mean for it to be that way. Initially, when I was writing the book, like I said, when I first started off, it wasn't even a book, it was supposed to be a newsletter back in 2017, it became a book in 2018. Um, and then as I eventually in 2018, 2019 came around to what I felt was a cohesive message that I could put in about 150 pages um, that would appeal to a broad audience. At that time, I realized that the audience just wasn't there. Like, and, and so it would be foolish of me to have wasted all that effort. But in the meantime, I can be working on the other books. So uh, if, if you want, I can give you the titles. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love that. Sure. So the series is called The Value of Bitcoin. Originally, that was going to be... Originally, that was going to be my, my, the title of the book because it was going to be one book, but that was going to be 600 pages, which is ridiculous. Um, so it was going to be called The Value of Bitcoin because the question that I wanted to answer was like, you know, this, if Bitcoin's not backed by anything, what's the value of this? How can anybody ha find this thing ha as having value? And that was the question I wanted to answer for folks. Um, and so the series is called The Value of Bitcoin. The first book is Orange Coin Good. Uh, the, the questions that we're trying to answer in that book is how can a purely digital money have value to anyone at all? That, that's the only question I'm trying to answer. Um, the second book uh, is called Bitcoin, Not Shitcoin. I'm sorry for uh, potentially swearing on your family-friendly podcast. Uh, no, no, uh, it's not. <laughs> it's not family-friendly. That's an official term of art, by the way, now that it's been said in Congress. So I feel, I feel confident calling Oh, yeah. It oh, no, and you should. You should. <laughs> it's our yeah. word. It's our word. <laughs> yeah. So, so the second book of the series, Bitcoin, Not Shitcoin, is going to answer the question, uh, well, how do you know Bitcoin is not just going to go away? How do you know the government's not just going to shut it down? How do you know it won't get supplanted by something else? Right. So that that's those questions will be answered in book two. Book three is called Number Go Up. And that is where we talk about, um, OK, well, if Bitcoin is going to survive, what will it be worth in the long term? Right. And of course, now we have to answer the question, like, how do we measure the worth of things? And so we're going to talk about um, where where price goes. That'll obviously be more speculative. And then the fourth book, which is the most speculative, is called Bitcoin Fixes This. And that's where we talk about the long-term implications of what I predict are going to be um, the organization of human affairs projecting that Bitcoin uh, succeeds in a way that I think it will. 
So orange coin good, Bitcoin not shitcoin, number go up, and Bitcoin fixes this. So you just have like the best titles for, for books. <laughs> I, I want to read every single one of those just based on the titles. Oh, <laughs> so, thanks. Well, so good. Uh, kudos to you. Well, um, thanks. I, I can't I can't claim credit for any of those memes. Uh, people have already memed them into existence, but um, still, yeah, they, nobody they no, seem to work. Yeah, nobody's chosen them as book titles yet. So, and I think that because those are already memes, I think that they're going to have that general appeal. Let's hope. I if you know? I if I get uh, if I get support from the Bitcoin community, if they don't if they don't turn on me, which uh, sometimes occurs, we'll see. Eh. You're you're in a good spot. I, I I think you've got the I think you've got the right people not turning on you. I think you've got the right people on your side. We'll see. <laughs> um, but actually, just to go back to okay, so the first book, right? Um, it, it it is a very interesting question, right? Um, how you know how is it valued? I I find I, I find it very interesting the mental gymnastics that that people go through to. Um, I guess to number one to dismiss Bitcoin because it doesn't, it isn't valued in the with the traditional metrics. What do you mean by traditional metrics? Like you know, like most people for some reason they'll they'll look at it and they'll compare it to a to a stock, right? And stocks have earnings, right? You know, free free cash flow. They've got you know, uh, price to earnings ratios. They've got all of these metrics that, you know, that measure their growth. But but yeah. with Bitcoin, what what we have is is a network and a network that accrues value because more people hold it and use it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. Um, that's a good point about the difference between stocks. Bitcoin is definitely not a stock, and it's definitely not an investment um, in terms of expecting a return. Like when you buy Tesla stock, Tesla's hot right now. Everybody's talking about Tesla. I don't, you know, <laughs> disclaimer, I don't, as far as I know, own any Tesla stock. Um, <clears throat> when you when you buy a share of Tesla, you expect the Tesla company to go out and make cars. That's the agreement. Like I'm, I'm buying a fraction of a company and I expect that company to go and do something. They're going to change the world in some small way, namely by making cars. They're going to sell those cars to somebody who thinks they're valuable and accrue money you know, in exchange for the car. So there's an expectation there. There's an expectation of value creation on the part of the company that you are a shareholder of. Um, with Bitcoin, there's no such thing. Like when you own a little Bitcoin, you don't expect anybody to do anything. Like it's just yours. It's like an, you know, it's a naive, naive, naive example, but it's like an entry in a spreadsheet. You have this, this is yours and that's it. There's no other expectation. So the, the velocity, so to speak of, um, of a stock is positive, hopefully, right? You expect it to produce something. Uh, the velocity of Bitcoin is zero. You expect it to do nothing. It's just there. That's true. That's a very good point. Yeah. The, so the way that, so in the, in chapter 10 of uh, orange coin, good, I kind of lay out uh, as like a preview where I think everything's going to go. <clears throat> and I predict in chapter 10 that Bitcoin will become what I call the metric of intersubjective value. So, First of all, point on value. <clears throat> value is always and everywhere a subjective appraisal. There's no such thing as intrinsic value. Nothing just has value. It's always in some context. Even yes. something, yeah, even something that you think uh, is essential for life, right? Like air in a room. That that is 
contextual on somebody being there to value the air that they're breathing, right? Or, or a drink of water. Like these are ne necessity for life, but unless there's a life there to value it, then it doesn't have value. The value is always a subjective appraisal on, on the part of the person who's doing the appraising. So when we try to do things like the market cap, what we're trying to approximate is the net value of something. Okay, so so for example, I, I don't know what I don't know what Tesla stock trades at right now, but you could buy one share for whatever its to, whatever its current price is, or you could buy two shares for whatever its current price is. And so then you try to add up those two shares, and you say, well, I have two shares of stock, and they were each priced at this according to the current fair market price. So the net value of my shares is X, which is you know X times two, like or sorry, um, price times two. But of course, if you tried to sell the two shares, the first one might sell for the current market price, but the second one's going to sell for a slightly different price because you've altered the market by selling the first share. The order book has changed minutely as it's kind of like quantum mechanics. You can't observe the system without changing it. Yes. By, right. So I had, a, I had a colleague once claim, he's like, oh, well, Bitcoin's so small, like Jeff Bezos could buy all of them. And I was like, no, he couldn't. Imagine for a moment if Jeff Bezos tried. If Jeff Bezos tried to dump his position in Amazon to buy all of the Bitcoin, immediately the value of his remaining stocks when he starts to sell is going to plummet because people are like, why is Jeff Bezos selling Amazon stock? And it would go through the floor. Oh, and, and people figure out, oh, he's buying Bitcoin with it. Well, I want to get in front of him. So then everybody buys Bitcoin. So Jeff Bezos's net worth as measured by multiplying the current stock price times how many shares he has is completely ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. So the idea of net worth as a, sorry, the idea of net worth or market cap, which are the same formula, to me, these are ridiculous concepts. We're trying to add up things that are not addable. I, I, right? com I completely agree. Yeah. So, so when I say that I think Bitcoin is going to become the metric of intersubjective value, you have to put aside a lot of this other stuff about um, the market cap uh, or the net worth of, or those types of things. But, but when, I, when I lay it out, I basically say, okay, there are, <clears throat> there's a scale of, uh, there's a scale, things you have kind of fall on a scale. At the low end of the scale, is things that get used up immediately as soon as you enjoy them. So if you have a glass of water and you drink it, it's gone. Like the or food you eat, that's gone immediately. So it's it's entirely negative in terms of use value. As soon as you use it, it's trash. It's garbage after use. In the as you go up the scale, uh, in terms of the goods you can buy, you get to things like maybe furniture. So furniture does wear out if you sit on it long enough, but it retains more of its value than a glass of water or a piece of food, right? So there's there's some amount of value that uh, that that item stores, so to speak, uh, because it doesn't all get used up. If you go up the scale from there, you arrive at things like gold, which because they decay so slowly, right? Gold doesn't tarnish; it doesn't really chemically combine with things. They store value a lot better than they get used value, so it's almost neutral with return with with respect to something like gold. But then you get into what you were just talking about, about investments, right? So when you buy a share of a company that's an equity, you expect it to do something for you. If you buy if you buy debt, right? So you buy a corporate bond that you expect the company to pay you back. So these are things that are further and further up on the scale in terms of that they return positive value. So things you can buy with your money are at the low end, immediately consumed, like consumables. And at the high end, they're, um, they're money producing. It might be equity in a company. It might be a rental property or something but it's the scale. So my contention with Bitcoin is that 
uh, right now, those things are measured in different ways. So if it's experiencing high inflation, like let's say a Latin American country, Venezuela or, um, or uh, Argentina, any of these countries that uh, frequently have currency issues, you might measure your day-to-day -day stuff, your food and your water, maybe your rent in the local pesos, but then you're going to try to capture and measure uh, larger things in dollars. So for example, in Argentina, I've heard that it's pretty, pretty common that real estate or like vehicles, you would price in US dollars. Whereas you go to the market and buy bananas, those are gonna be priced in local pesos. So use different, use different measuring tools to figure out the value based on where it is on this scale. And currently in the United States, we use the dollar scale for everything. But once you get up into the value return end of that spectrum, where you're like, well, I wanna buy Tesla stock, for example. Well, the benchmark really isn't the dollar anymore. You're not measuring how well Tesla performs relative to the dollar. You wanna know how well Tesla does against the risk-free rate of return, for example. Um, so there is no such thing as a risk-free rate of return, but a lot of experts would consider like the United States treasury in the, the US to be a very close proxy. Yeah. So you say, well, what, what would my return be on a US treasury and how well does Tesla do against that? But even Tesla, you're not really comparing against the treasury. You're probably comparing against a benchmark index like the S&P. Right. So the point that I'm making here is that what you compare against changes depending on where you are on that spectrum. It's not always the same thing. So my claim with Bitcoin is that at saturation, Bitcoin eats up the big middle of that whole spectrum. So to the degree that we still have states and you still live in a place that, you know, issues its own fiat currency, your low end scale stuff, your your you know food and clothing, that's probably still going to be priced in your local fiat currency because they have a monopoly on what they declare as legal tender. And at the super high end of the scale, when you're talking about like buying a company, buying a, a share of a company like Tesla, uh, that's still going to be measured based on the industry benchmark. What is the industry as a whole that you're comparing against? What do they return? But for the vast middle, like buying a house or um, whether or not you want to buy gold or whether or not you want to um, whether or not you want to invest in uh, government debt or whatever, I believe that all of that is going to be uh, in sats. So the opportunity cost of investing in anything is could I, what would I have gotten by just holding the same balance of sats? That's what I mean by um, the metric of inner subjective value, that sats becomes the, the thing against which all other investments have to justify themselves. Sats the standard. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I really, um, I, I, I do like that a lot. Um, that that's you've like I said, you have such a way of explaining things. It's absolutely fantastic, and um, I, I think that that you know that people definitely need to hear that. Um, the so do you think? Um, so okay, I, I mean, I guess do you think it's good that Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, I don't really believe in intrinsic value. I know that it's a term that floats around, uh, you know, very many circles and it's extremely important. But um, to, to your point, so do you think it's a good thing that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value? I personally think it, it does. I, I don't um, to me, it's um, it's important, I think, that it cannot be used for other things. I think it's important that it can only be used in the way that it can be used in. Yeah, I think, I think if I understand what you're asking, <clears throat> if I could rephrase it. So other goods, uh, for example, you know, we might talk about gold, right? Gold can be used in an aesthetic way. You can gold plate 
uh, something and make it look and make it look shiny and pretty. You can use it for tooth fillings, or uh, as Peter Schiff would remind us, you could make cufflinks out of it. Right? There's something else of industrial value you could do with gold. I mean, you could even make an amalgam or a, I know there are there are a few uh, chemical compounds you can make with gold. There's very few. I looked it up one time. Um, <laughs> so so there's all this other stuff you could do with gold other than use it as money. <clears throat> and so then the question is, uh, is it good? Is it good and proper that Bitcoin doesn't have anything else to do but be money? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be. I, I try to stay away, generally speaking, from questions of good, bad, or like a should. You know, like well, should I do this or should I do that? Because um, you know, then you're making a normative value, and I'm a, I'm a, of the opinion that different people have different preferences. So is it good or not? I don't know. I don't know if it's good or not. I, I think it probably is. Um, but it's not to say that Bitcoin can't be used for anything else. So let me give you an example. Uh, there's the, the op return codes that people use in Bitcoin to stamp um, little, little codes in there. Uh, so you can use block space for something other than money by putting an op return code to say, this was true at this time in the past. It, you know, uh, oh, is it good okay. or bad that it's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not, um, I'm not, what's the call? I'm not fully versed on how this works, but I understand that, uh, you could use it to create timestamps that are then immediately part of the blockchain. That's very cool. Yeah. So for example, let's say, let's say you had an important document. Let's say, let's say you invented something. Okay. And you want to prove that you in fact did invent this. What you could do is you could uh, create a hash, like let's say a SHA-256 hash of your document, and then put that SHA-256 hash into an op return code on the blockchain. Now to anybody looking at the outside, unless they knew that you had run your document through the SHA-256 hash, to them, it just looks like an op return code with some garbage bytes in there. Right. But then later, if somebody claims the invention and you say, no, no, I claimed it, I, I really invented this, they say, well, yeah, prove it. You can say, well, here's my document. Here's me running it through the SHA 256. You can do the same. Here's it on the blockchain as of 2020. Now you can see unambiguously that I wrote this document and I stamped it and put it in the, in the blockchain. And unless you claim that the entire blockchain is false, you know, I made this document. So, so that, that should prove beyond a reasonable doubt to any competent court that you, in fact, were the creator of that invention um, in such a way that's not revocable. So definitely right. right there, what you just explained, just ruined the hopes and dreams of at least five shitcoin projects. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yeah. And I think, you know? I think, I think Peter, I think Peter Todd did a, an op his thing, open timestamps. I think yes. it works on this property. Yes. It, it works exactly like what I just described, except instead of just one document, he takes a whole bunch of documents or a, a bunch of SHA-256 of a bunch of documents, or, or maybe there's a tree of them. I don't know. And then at the output of a bunch of, um, at, at the output of a bunch of steps is a code that then gets written into an opcode. So you can, you can, uh, a practically unlimited amount of data and stamp it into one hash on the blockchain. So um, and that, that's what I think. That's what I think his project does. But again, I'm not a technical expert on that particular subject matter. No, no worries, no worries. But that's still uh, that. That's definitely fascinating. Um, so let me ask you this: um, Were you were you ever a, a gold bug? Uh, that's a good question. So, um, so I did. I as I mentioned, I have read uh, Creature from Jekyll Island and some other um, some other relevant background material. Uh, I did want to buy gold, and I'm embarrassed to say that in 2017, I bought some gold uh, before I bought Bitcoin, which was uh, kind of silly. Um, 
So I, I, I had my dad had always talked about gold, but then he never actually bought it. And then in 2017, I was like, all right, I'm gonna figure out how to buy gold. How do you do this? And I didn't want to like credit card buy some stuff on the internet. That seemed really shady. Uh, so I eventually figured out how to buy gold in person uh, and how to assert that it was in fact gold. Anyway, so I bought some gold in person. So I have a very small amount, like like a ridiculously small amount. Uh, so I was kind of a little bit pro gold, but um, you know, after I learned about Bitcoin, I, I just have no interest in it anymore. Yeah, that's that that's pretty much how I feel. Um, so also, why I guess. Um, why can't gold be money again? Because I, I was telling you about the, uh, you know, our, uh, the, uh, the tweet that I was saving of yours. And um, I, I definitely wanted to get into that. I mean, I, I personally, I know why I think gold can't be money anymore. You know, it's just not as easy to, it, it already had its shot. Uh, we've already figured out that it can be faked. Um, and the other thing about it is, is that it's not easy to transfer. It's, uh, to me, it's like a relic of the past. You know, where whereas Bitcoin is much more futuristic and and has the the properties that we have going forward. But, um, you know, to to somebody, let's say that that would be asking you, you know, why, you know, why, why can't gold be money? What would you say? Yeah, that's a really good point. So the way I put it is this um, gold succeeded because it was hard to produce gold failed because it's hard to transmit. So back in the 19th century, that is the 1800s. Uh, telecommunications started to become a thing. You could do a telegram, you could do a long distance uh, call of kind of limited sort, right? These, these technologies started to become a thing, which meant you could negotiate business over long distances, but you couldn't settle. And so as a result of not being able to settle, the physical gold was a pain. People started switching out and using banks instead. The conclusion of the banking experiment was the creation of central banks, which is the regime that we now reside in. So in my opinion, gold already failed under the technological advancements of last century. No, sorry, two centuries ago, right? The, the, the 1800s kind of demonstrated that gold was not suitable as money anymore, and everybody switched to these banknotes, which were in principle redeemable as gold. So gold, because it, because it can't be transmitted easily, um, it, it would automatically be replaced with credit. Unfortunately, it's really super hard to talk to most people about um, about this stuff because it's like they're they're either willfully or um, they're either willfully ignorant or accidentally ignorant. So, for example, Peter Schiff, he'll get on a show and he'll say like, "Look at my look at my gold card. I can I can pay for things with gold." No, you're paying with a credit card that whose credit might be denominated in ounces of gold, but it's still credit. It's not the thing itself. So, I, a lot of people in Bitcoin like to talk about scarcity, and I I kind of veer away from that word because. It, it can mean different things depending on if you try to dig into it. Like at an emotional level, we understand scarcity. I understand that if something is, you know, for a limited time only, I want to get it. I want to get in on that because it's scarce, right? So from an emotional, from an emotional perspective, scarcity makes sense. But from a, um, from a very like strict logical standpoint, it becomes difficult to reason about. So I, I tend to, I tend to focus on different properties. So what I say about Bitcoin, it is the first and most rival excludable digital good. These are terms that most people might not be familiar with, but they're they're common economic terms. A good is rival. <clears throat> a good is rival if only one person can be enjoying it at a time. So a canonical example would be like a pair of pants. If I'm in the pants, you can't also be in the pants. Like one of us is going to be in the pants and that's it. So we are we are rivals in that in that sense. 
That's true. Yeah. So a good is ex- a good is excludable if it's possible, if it's reasonable to keep people out of it. So a pair of pants is both rival and excludable. I can exclude people from my pants and I can enjoy them and nobody else can at, at the time. But goods can be any combination of both of rival or excludable or neither or both. <clears throat> so a good that is not rival but is excludable would be, for example, an amusement park. So if you and I are both at the amusement park, we can both enjoy the amusement park. We're not rivals in that sense. But the amusement park can keep out people who haven't paid. They can exclude people from enjoying the amusement park who haven't paid, right? Um, On the flip side, you can have something that a a good that is uh, rival but not excludable. So the the example that economics textbooks like to give is like fish in the ocean. If I catch a fish in the ocean, you can't also have caught the same fish. We are rivals at fishing. But it would be impractical to try to keep everybody out of fishing for fish in the ocean. Fishing for fish in the ocean is available to anybody who has a boat, right? Yes. And then you can have goods that are neither rival nor excludable. So uh, the example that I like to give with that is like a fireworks show. Once I put the fireworks in the air, anybody in the area can enjoy those fireworks, enjoy watching them, and I can't stop them. I can't exclude anybody from enjoying the fireworks. And any number of people can enjoy the fireworks at the same time. They're not rivals. Like It's both non-rival and non-excludable. Okay, so when I say that Bitcoin is the first and most rival excludable digital good, what I mean to say is it is the first good that has the property of being rival and excludable and digital, and there's been nothing else like that. The closest other thing I could think of would be something like maybe World of Warcraft gold. So in in the game of World of Warcraft, you can farm for gold, you know, you you kill enemies, whatever. I've actually never played World of Warcraft, but I understand that this is what people do. But really, any game, any in-game resource functions this way. You're in a game, you do something, you get it. It's now yours, and no other player on the server can also have it because it's yours and not theirs. And as a player in the system, you can exclude them from having it. It's in your inventory and not their inventory. But the but the thing is, it's centralized in the sense that it's some game server's server, and so you can't exclude them from having it. The, the, the company, Blizzard, could take your Warcraft Gold, and they frequently do. For example, if you were found to be hacking or something, then they would take your Warcraft Gold and shut down your account, right? Yeah. So it's not ex- it's not excludable. It is rival in the sense that if I have the gold, somebody else can also have the gold, but it's not excludable in the sense that I can't stop the company from taking away my stuff, right? And most most digital goods tend not to be tend not to be rival or excludable. Uh, I would I would use example of something like Netflix as a good that is um, non-rival but excludable. So you and I can both be watching Netflix. We can both enjoy Netflix. We're not rivals, but Netflix can stop anybody who hasn't paid from watching Netflix, so it's excludable. So Bitcoin is the first and most rival excludable digital good. Nothing else has those properties, and those properties are necessary for being um, for being money in our modern age. And so I can't say that Bitcoin is the only rival excludable digital good because shitcoins also fall into that um, well, not all shitcoins, but some shitcoins fall into that category as well. But then now we get into another discussion about like what makes Bitcoin better than all of its um, all of its uh, would be competitors. Yeah, no, let's. Uh, I mean, I, I'm definitely ready to to dive into that because, of course, you know, uh, I I shitcoined way before back in uh, 2017, and I read a lot of crappy white papers, and I fell for the tech and everything like that so I, I think that that would definitely you know that would definitely help listeners you know why why is bitcoin better than you know why is bitcoin better than the shitcoins i mean sure. 
Yeah, I mean, okay, I'm happy to talk about that. Cool. Um, so, so this would actually be the subject of the second book, uh, Bitcoin Not Shitcoin, that I haven't really finished writing, but I'm happy to give you some some thoughts on that. And I'll try to do it by giving the strongest case of what I think is like a shitcoin that could otherwise have had value but won't, right? So uh, let me give you an example. So yeah. uh, Bitcoin signatures are based on um, elliptic curve cryptography. And I can't claim to understand what that is or how it works. Uh, it's on my list of things to study. But the point is, is that it's an advanced form of math. And uh, competent people have, have suspected that if we ever get quantum computers that are sufficiently capable, they could potentially crack elliptic curve signatures um, relatively quickly. So what that means is that once you have spent a from a once you have spent from an, adre an address, you've revealed enough that under modern um, computation, nobody could backtrack and figure out what your private key was. But in a quantum world, they could. So once you try to spend, here's the problem. You try to spend, you, you, you're saying, okay, I'm going to spend for my cold storage. You broadcast a transaction with a sufficiently powerful computer. They could reverse engineer what your private key was and then race in front of you by having a better connected node and put their own transaction that spends your coins having cracked your code before your transaction uh, gets to all the nodes in the network, right? So in a, in a hypothetical future with super powerful quantum computers, it is conceivable that one attack vector on Bitcoin would be to have quantum pirates that try to crack elliptic curve signatures, uh, private keys so quickly that they can race in front of transactions that would spend old coins. Okay. So <clears throat> this is, this is, this is just a thing. I mean, I, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not the world's greatest expert on this. This is my understanding. So the, the, so for, so one way to solve this problem is to have quantum resistant hashing functions or quantum resistant signatures. We could get those into Bitcoin, uh, but it's going to be a little challenging. So Anyway, so the QRL paper, uh, the quantum resistant ledger paper, talks about a mechanism for creating signatures that are resistant to quantum computing in the sense that a quantum computer might still crack it faster than a conventional computer, but only to a degree that's not relevant. Uh, like it might do it, say, twice as fast, but not so much faster that it becomes instantaneous. Okay. So the quantum resistant ledger paper talks about how you might do this, but then it goes on to propose their own token. Uh, with their own issuance schedule, their own monetary policy, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so my claim about that is like, what Bitcoin is at its heart, as we've already hinted earlier, is a big spreadsheet of numbered accounts, your UTXOs or your addresses, that's the, the data in the ledger, and you have the ability to move some of those values around. That's kind of the key thing, and all of the mining and everything else about Bitcoin is to preserve the sanctity of that data set. So anything else, any other any other would be chain, like consider QRL, which does solve, as I've described, a real potential future problem for Bitcoin. The question you have to ask is, uh, would which is better, the quantum resistant ledger um, coin with its uh, with its token and whatever, or the Bitcoin spreadsheet plus the quantum resistant technology? And the answer is, I'd rather have my Bitcoin with the quantum resistant technology than quantum resistant technology and some other like shitcoin. I'd rather just keep my UTXOs, right, if I can. You see. So, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, just to cut in, um, that that's exactly the point, <laughs> right? Is that 
we we want to hang on to our Bitcoin, there's there's really very little that would make us switch over to another coin, um, because the reality is is that any any technology worth its salt is going to get pushed into Bitcoin. Exactly. Exactly. If it's if it's good enough, if it's good enough technology that Bitcoin would benefit from having it, then Bitcoin could just adopt it, and it should, right? And if it's not good enough, then by definition, it's not good enough, and we don't care. And and that's kind of really all there is to it. So I so even even in what I would consider to be this is like my steel man case. My steel man case is there is a legitimate potentially uh, there is a legitimate potential future problem in the term of in the terms of like super powerful future quantum computers, right? We know that there's hypothetically a future real problem and you could really solve it with a particular coins implementation, you know, so far as it's sound, which I'm not qualified to evaluate because now we're talking about like quantum cryptography of which there's a very small number of people who are uh, qualified to, to research that. But anyway, so here's the steel man case. The steel man case is here's a real potential future problem of Bitcoin and here's a real potential solution. But it would be better if we just merge that into Bitcoin in the case that it becomes a, a real problem, then create a whole separate database. I'd rather just keep the existing database with the enhanced signatures than you know, have an entirely new database of value. To me, that's ridiculous. This is actually also why I don't think Bitcoin's gonna die. Like, like almost any threat you can conceive of that would try to kill Bitcoin, it's like, well, we still have the database. So let's just fix the problem and keep the database, right? That, to me, that's why it wins. I, I totally agree. And and I think that that's, you know, the other thing is I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was that I was talking to about this, you know, but they said to me, they're like, okay, so do you, you know, when, when you're looking at a shit coin, what do you, you know, what do you think would get everybody to move over to that shit coin? And, and it's like, and, and do you think you can get that to happen? And it's like, and it's not even just me, right? It's not even just me trying to get that to happen, but just, you know, can you, it's almost like, you know, the, the greater question is, do you think you can shift the shelling point to something else and then make everybody else realize it and move their value there? Right. Don't right. get me wrong, yeah. but I, I don't see it happening that easily. I mean, we all know why it happened with Bitcoin. It happened with Bitcoin because we had the proper set, you know, the, the set setting in mode. You know, we had the we had the financial crisis. You know, we had all the, you know, we, we had all the, you know, the people that lost all kinds of money in that. We had, um, you know, there was like obviously the, uh, you know, the credit default swaps and all of these problems with the mortgages and all these, you know, people, you know, losing all kinds of assets that they had been pretty much building up for the last 40 years that just evaporated overnight. So th there was like a, a major, th there was a major kink in the armor that showed, in, in, even though it has showed many times before in the past, but for some reason, this time, somebody was there that could actually do something about it and said, you know what, we can fix this. So I, I think that that's, you know, that that's again, like Bitcoin had that, that perfect setting for this. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. And, and um, you know, I've, I've commented before, it, it amazes me how good Bitcoin is, because as I as I learned more about it, it just it just really uh, continued to impress me. But one thing that you mentioned in your in your um, analysis there that I think is really relevant is you say, well, what would make everyone switch over? And that everyone is kind of the key point. So in in, um, in my book, I, I say that uh, Bitcoin is really three things. It's a money. It's a you know a, a consensual money, programmable consensual programmable money. 
the second thing it is, is a computer network that secures that value. And then the third thing it is, is it's a social network. And we are a part of that. The clubs are a part of that, right? Everybody who uses it and believes and, and who understands um, who understands Bitcoin to mean one thing and not another thing, that's the social angle. So those are those three parts. So people ask like, well, what stops somebody else from just making their own Bitcoin? And the answer is, well, the code is open source, nothing. You can take it. In fact, you can fork the whole database. You can fork the chain if you want and then just make your own, your own copy. Nothing is going to stop you. The problem is you can't fork the people, right? You can't get everybody... You can't copy the people and you can't just move them all over. You can, you can spin up on Amazon. You know, you could use Amazon or uh, what's that? Uh, Microsoft Azure. You could use something to spin up a whole bunch of nodes, right? You can't even call it the number of nodes because the number of nodes doesn't matter. And anybody could spin up any number of nodes. You can spin up all the nodes in the world that you want. You can, um, you can uh, make your own coin with, you know, the open source uh, software. But what you can't do is you can't, you can't clone the people. And that's really the that's really the crux of it, and that's why that's why I think Bitcoin's going to win. So I'm sure that there's going to be some there's definitely going to be some haters out there because you pretty much just proved that there's a dare I say social layer to Bitcoin. So. <laughs> well, well, so that, well, this yeah, this comes full circle. This I love it we though. Talked about early, yeah. Well, we talked about earlier, right? Value is always and everywhere a subjective appraisal. In my opinion, there's no such thing as intrinsic value. Nothing has value intrinsically. Everything value always requires a, sub, a subjective appraisal from somebody who's experiencing something and then making a value judgment. And so, yeah, it Bitcoin really does require um, and and uh, and is based on the. The shelling point, as you said, the uh, the collective appraisal of everyone that this is what we want. I completely agree. And seriously, uh, it, it's just listening to you explain these things. I, I kid you not. I don't think I've heard somebody pull out so many amazing quotes about Bitcoin in one conversation. Oh, well, I swear. <laughs> well, thanks. If it, I, I, I like I said, I I. I have the benefit of having read a lot of um, really useful stuff from a lot of really smart people. So a lot of what I say isn't my own thoughts so much as it's uh, it's um, like an amalgam of, of things that I've I've picked up. Yeah, but you know what? Well, most of us are like that, right? I mean, I, I'm an accumulation of the you know of all my experiences and the the stuff that I, you know the books that I've read and the information I've retained and um, you know it, it definitely it definitely shows that, you know, you're able to speak on these topics um, very easily. And it's really nice because I think it's going to help a lot of noobs. And actually on the topic of noobs, um, what would you say is, um, what would you say is like the, uh, the biggest barrier to entry uh, for, for Bitcoin in terms of understanding? Like somebody, like a noob is being introduced Bitcoin, like, what, what do you think the piece is that they get completely wrong or that they completely misunderstand right from the start? Um, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's hard for me to answer because I think different people get hung up on different things. And I try to, I try to, I try to break it down as like questions, like what are, what are questions people have? So one question that people frequently have is like, well, I heard that Bitcoin's not backed by anything. How can anybody find it valuable, right? So that would be a question that people have. So I remember talking, for example, oh, this is this is great. We can talk about unit bias. So I was I was uh, <laughs> shilling Bitcoin to um, a friend of mine, uh, a couple of friends of mine. They're married, and uh, one of them said, 
because I mentioned that Bitcoin was at that time, it was like maybe $6,000. I said, well, you know, Bitcoin's cost about $6,000. And one of my friends is like, well, that's ridiculous. I, I can't imagine they should be like $10, right? Because the idea of something being $6,000 and being digital money sounded ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. But they were okay with the idea knowing, again, this is like a first introduction to Bitcoin. There's no other information on, on the line at this time. But the idea that something the unit would be $6,000 was itself ridiculous, but $10 sounded okay. Right. So that would be, that would be, um, that would be a hangup would be like, how can something have so much value and be digital in nature is, is an example of a hangup. Um, but yeah, yeah, this is, this is, this is the, uh, this is the classic, right? So <clears throat> if you look at my, if you look at my Twitter uh, profile, what it says in there is that I say that the real FOMO moon pump starts at a million dollars, right? And some people will say like, that's ridiculous. Like what kind of hopium is that? And uh, this is a, this is a conclusion that I've came to from, from hours of analysis. It goes like this. So first of all, uh, fiat as we, as we know, right? So, okay. This is a podcast. So I I have to kind of gesture with my hands and your audience will have to imagine me like pointing at a chart. But if you if you map and and the uh, Fred the the, uh, the Federal Reserve like economic data website has charts that you can view of this. If you imagine the money supply, like how much money is there, dollars for example, you can look at a chart. And if you look at it on a linear scale, it's the classic hockey stick pattern, which betrays an exponential growth. If you put it on a log scale, it's a nice straight line. But the point is, is that the amount of money that exists grows at roughly six to 8% every year. Every year, there's six to 8% more money than there was the year before. And here we can fudge the numbers a little bit uh, as far as what does it mean to be money and whether or not M2 is money or M1 or M0. I can I can describe what all those terms mean for your audience if they wanna know. But the point is, is that money grows at a rate of roughly six to 8% per year, okay? But we all know that Bitcoin supply is ultimately fixed and the amount that is unlocked, I, I, I don't really use the word, I'm trying to avoid using the word issued, but the amount of value that's unlocked yes. by yeah, <laughs> the amount of value that's unlocked by uh, miners is decreasing all the time. As far as uh, you know, I'm sure your your listeners are familiar with the, the concept of stock to flow. As a proportion of all of the stock of Bitcoin that is there, the amount that becomes available to to miners who unlock it in the Coinbase transaction uh, is decreasing all the time. So whereas fiat currency increases all the time, Bitcoin um, unlocking is decreasing all the time. So what we can expect is that if if the relative demand for Bitcoin and fiat was stable, it will never be stable. But if it was stable, if the amount that people Bitcoin and the amount that people wanted fiat was stable, you would expect, based on the supply curves, that Bitcoin should always be becoming more valuable in fiat terms and fiat should always be becoming less valuable in Bitcoin terms. So no matter where you start, so right now, right now the ratio of desirability as determined by the market, the the spot price, quote unquote, of Bitcoin is $9,000 and change. Wherever you start, it doesn't matter where you start. If demand was stable, you would expect that the price of Bitcoin in fiat currency would go up over time. So any future valuation that you pick, $1 million, $100 million, doesn't matter. It should, you know, all other things being equal, again, we're, we're assuming something that will never be true, but all other things being equal, you would expect eventually that valuation to come true over a long enough time horizon. So I don't think that valuations like a like million dollars for Bitcoin or a hundred million dollars for Bitcoin are ridiculous. It's really only a matter of time once you accept that Bitcoin's not going to go away and fiat's not gonna stop being printed. Like 
if you accept those two premises and you're willing to uh, entertain the possibility that demand is stable, any valuation is possible. Okay, so I mentioned my friend who thought that uh, $6,000 for a Bitcoin was ridiculous, but $10 would be okay based on this unit bias, this bias for having a whole one. And shitcoins prey on this. Like shitcoins, this is why Ripple pumped so much in 2017 and, and occasionally pumps again. Because people say like, well, for $100, I can only have a small part of a Bitcoin, but I could have several whole Ripples or I don't even, I don't know what the price is, right? And so they look at it the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so right now I say, right now I say here in the, here in the mid, you know, thousands of dollars per Bitcoin, Bitcoin is crossing an awkwardly wide chasm because paying $9,000 or $10,000 for something is out of reach of most, most people. I mean, I've heard statistics that, you know, most Americans can't come up with $400 if they needed to for an emergency. Like it's, it's pretty dire out there. So the idea of paying $9,000 for something that's like funny internet money is a ridiculous concept, but people are willing to wager a little bit of money on something. And so they go with these things they can buy whole units of. And meanwhile, you and I, and everyone listening to this understands that there are a hundred million sats in a Bitcoin. And so, well, yeah, I could, but I can get several hundred thousand sats for just a few, a few dollars or a few tens of dollars or whatever. But if you think about it, if it takes 10,000 sats to make a dollar, a sat is too small. Like one sat is too small to really reason about. People are not good at thinking about very large numbers, numbers with, with lots of commas or, or you know, periods if you're in, uh, in Europe. And they're not good at thinking about very small numbers, smaller numbers that have very many decimals. Those are just, they're just difficult concepts. So Bitcoin's crossing this weird chasm. So what I say is that when Bitcoin hits a million dollars per unit per Bitcoin, it no longer makes sense for CNBC and MSNBC to have a Bitcoin price ticker because it would just be a ridiculous thing. It would say like, you know, Bitcoin is now $1,053,000 and change and blah, blah, blah. Like it would be silly. So what they're going to do is they're going to switch to a SAT ticker and they're going to say, oh, SATs are now one cent. Well, now once SATs are one cent, people say, oh, I can, I can buy a whole bunch of those. It's a penny stock. And that's when they FOMO in. So to me, the real moon pump is when we hit a million dollars on the ride from $1 million to $100 million, because that is sat cent parity to dollar, dollar sat parity. That's the real vertical of the S-curve, in my opinion. And everything else that we've seen so far, the stock to flow model, everything else, to me, all of that is probably just noise in the graph leading up to the real vertical at a million dollars. That is so bullish. I might have to stack, <laughs> might have to stack sats when we're done this. <laughs> that was awesome. That that's, but, that's my thesis, yeah. But I, I totally, I mean, I, I definitely agree. And and you touched on you touched on two things, right? Like the unit bias. Unit bias is hard. I could say that's one of the reasons I shit coined, um, and I understood that what I was doing was wrong. See that that's the sad part. It doesn't matter like how much you you justify it. Like it was still being an idiot, you know. So it's like I can come up with all the reasons I want, but at the end of the day, I just wanted to have more of whatever the hell that thing was. Um, because it made me feel better, you know, because I had more of it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make you feel better because you're not actually buying or collecting or accumulating what it is that you're intending to accumulate. You're, you're, you're actually accumulating and holding something you don't want at all. 
So definitely the, the unit bias is a, uh, that, that's definitely a, a strong one that leads people astray. And you touched on something very important uh, that I've seen the discussion, okay, because a lot of people try to, I, I'd say, shitcoin Bitcoin with the issued versus unlocked, where you have people sitting there saying, Bitcoin has inflation, you know, because, because they, uh, because every 10 minutes, you know, you get a, you know, you go and you get a, a block reward. You know, and it's like, okay, yeah, you go and you mint Bitcoin, but you, you mint less and less Bitcoin, you know? And yeah. and, and to me, um, just so, so I could finish this, uh, the, the thought was, um, it's, already been it's already been predetermined that there's 21 million Bitcoin. The issuance schedule doesn't, it, it really is practically irrelevant. There's 21 million. The, it was designed to bootstrap the... Um, it was designed to bootstrap Bitcoin and it provided its function. But at the end of the day, there's always 21 million. Whether there's 21 million today or there's 21 million in 2140, I don't really care. It's still 21 million. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, the, the word the word inflation is uh, a little bit troublesome because it it just has some different meanings. Um, when economists talk about inflation, what they mean is uh, changes to the aggregate price level. And of course, even using the word aggregate for price level to mm -hmm. me is kind of ridiculous. How do you aggregate prices? How do you add together the prices of, say, cars and the prices of, say, popcorn? Like, well, how much popcorn does a person consume? Well, how much cars do people consume? Right. And all of that is, of course, based on people's preferences. It's based on people's way of life. It's based on where people live. And so we have these measures like the CPI, which is the uh, the consumer price index, which tries to aggregate all these things. But there's a whole lot of hyperparameters. Um, yeah. Computer science are called hyperparameters. There's a whole bunch of hyperparameters that go into that. Like, what do I include? What what constitutes the same thing? Right. So is a uh, is a Chevy Malibu 2020 edition the same as a Chevy Malibu 2019? Do I consider those the same or are they different? If they consider them as the same, well, that's not really fair because the 2020 might have features that the 2019 didn't have or it might have removed features, right? And if I call them different things, well, then how do I ever manage, how do I ever measure the difference in price between things if they're always different, different goods? So... Unfortunately, we have this idea that we can somehow aggregate or combine relative value judgments, value judgments here meaning like the price of something. And to me, it's just a ridiculous endeavor. So unfortunately, the word inflation has a couple of different meanings. When economists talk about it, what they mean is the change in prices. In the, uh, in the Austrian school, we understand that changes in prices come from an increase in the money supply. Some people refer to the increase of the money supply as inflation. So um, in my books, what I try to do is I, I always, whenever I use the word inflation, which is pretty rare on purpose, I always either say price inflation, where I'm very specifically meaning changes in prices, or I say uh, like monetary supply inflation or monetary supply issuance or something else like that to, to really distinguish those, those things from each other. That's definitely helpful. And I, I got to say, uh, it's using those terms interchangeably when people don't quite understand Bitcoin is unfortunately detrimental, you know, and, and people, you know, because you know how it goes, right? You say the word inflation and people picture something in their head. So, 
you know, and they're most likely not picturing exactly what we're talking about in Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't actually have, um, regardless of how you define inflation, it doesn't actually have inflation. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's like the major takeaway. <laughs> right. So some people get really hung up on, on terms and people will argue like, what is this? You know, is this inflation or is it not inflation? And people uh, like, this is one of those things where once I say it, uh, you're probably going to observe it. And then you'd be like, wow, that happens a lot. People, people argue about what something is. And it's like, well, a lot of times what something is comes down to how you define it. And if it comes down to how you define it, then really what we're talking about is the variable. So if I'm, if I'm writing an algebraic expression and I say X equals five, it doesn't matter whether I called it X or whether I called it Y. If it's equal to five, the statement X equals five or Y equals five or whatever it is, that statement in its whole, including the definition of the terms is what's relevant, not any particular thing. So like, anyway, I'm rambling. No, no, it's a man. It's a, it's a good example. I appreciate it. So, Jimbo, man, we've been we've been going at it for an hour, and it's totally awesome to uh, you know to get you on the pod to talk about this stuff. Um, do you, we're we're gonna wrap it up? Do you have any uh, any final thoughts you want to leave with the with the listeners? Um, the only other thing uh, that we had potentially talked about was uh, was conservation of time preference. Did you want to talk about that or skip it? Oh. Oh yeah, no. I mean, we can definitely uh, we can definitely go into time preference. Um, I, I I apologize. I totally forgot about that. So, um, okay. So just to to set the premise right, uh, we we were having a discussion a bunch of us in the Taco Plebes group, and you had mentioned something very interesting because I, I I had mentioned that you know Bitcoin is low time preference, right? Because we are accumulating it to use it later on in the future, which means we don't have the immediate desire to spend it now. But you had a very interesting uh, you had a very interesting counterpoint on that. Oh yeah, so so the way that the the way that I that I um, preface and here here again right so time preference is one of those words that uh, or phrases that that people argue like is this low or is this high and it, it confuses people. And so my observation is that typically when people are talking about time preference, there's something outside of their time preference computation. So. If, if we're talking about whether or not somebody wants to go out to the movies, well, if I go out to the movies, I've spent my money. And so do we call that a higher time preference than if I waited to go to the movies? But in all of these cases, the presumption is that you have money and that you're preferring something else other than money, right? So if I go to the movies and I spend my money, then I've preferred going to the movies. I have a high time preference for movies relative to money, but there's always a relative to kind of implicit in the discussion. And so it, it's confusing when you talk about Bitcoin because now you have two different potential reference frames. Are, is your potential reference frame fiat currency, in which case you'd say, I am exhibiting a, uh, I am exhibiting a, let's see, if I buy Bitcoin with fiat currency, then I have high time preference for Bitcoin relative to fiat currency because I've already defined that fiat currency is my reference, just like going to the movies. Right. But if your if your reference frame is Bitcoin, then when you buy Bitcoin, you're selling fiat and you're saying, I have low time preference <laughs> for things, that, things that are not. So it just gets very confusing. So um, anyway, the, 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 what I eventually came up with is like there's kind of like a conservation of preference. If you include everything, all of the monies that you could have and all of the goods you might enjoy collectively, there's a sort of conservation of preference. And when you make a choice and you say, I'm going to spend money to go to a movie or versus I'm not going to spend money to go to a movie, I inherently, if I prefer the movie, 
I didn't prefer the money or if I prefer the money, then I didn't prefer the movie. And so um, that's all I mean to say. Unfortunately, a lot of the discussion around Bitcoin tends to be I'm holding Bitcoin because I have low time preference. But uh, that's that uses I don't know how to explain it <laughs> that uses Bitcoin. <laughs> frame uh but it's really conservation of preference so i i personally i have super high time preference for bitcoin because i'd rather have the bitcoin right now right relative to a lot of other things i might spend my bitcoin on oh i completely agree and then of course after you had explained that i realized i'm like ah i actually do have high time preference for bitcoin because i want to hold as much as i can now so right. <laughs> it's and i want to accumulate it as quickly as i can now so it's yeah i i totally agree and i love the way that you put that so um, any, uh, any final thoughts for the listeners? That That's all I had. That was it. All right, man. Look, seriously, Jimbo, it's been super cool to have you on. I really look forward to not just the first book, but the other three. And I, I can't wait when we get to that 18 K and we get to finally see the Jimbo orange coin book, orange coin. Good. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on my pod, man. No problem. Anytime. Hope everybody enjoyed my chat with Jimbo. I absolutely always love reading his walls of text uh, that he puts in the Taco Carnivore Bitcoin Plead group. Um, he always has really interesting points that definitely make me think and make me dig a little deeper. So his uh, contact details will be in the uh, in the show notes. And as for me, if you want to reach me on Twitter or Telegram, I am at CoinIcarus. If you want to shoot me an email, I am CoinIcarus at funwithbitcoin.com. Thank you all for listening and catch you all next time.